Oh God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, and Lord, that you would give us hearts of understanding to receive your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard the term fake news quite a lot over the last couple of years. President Trump has made uh, this phrase uh, popular, and yet it seems as though since the beginning of time, mankind has mastered the art of manipulating information in order to misguide others for their own benefit. In warfare, this is called propaganda. In trade, it's called advertisement. And in politics, it's, well, just called politics. <laughs> we used to live in a day and age in which the information that we would receive was quite manageable. It was uh, even quite limited. But the day and age in which we live in today, it seems as though there is an unlimited stream of information that is constantly bombarding us. And the challenge is, is we don't always know what is true and what is uh, fake news or inaccurate. It seems as though we cannot trust any source of information by default. Admittedly, I'm definitely that guy who in the past have seen a video or something on the internet, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like, this has to be true. And I, you know, show it to Lindsay, my wife. I'm like, Lindsay, did you see this video? Like, this cat can fly. Like, you've got to check this out. And she watches, she's like, no, that's not real. Like, they've edited this video. Like, you can't believe everything that you see. And it's true. You can't believe every news uh, source. You can't believe every commentary, every video that is out there. That may surprise you, but that situation was no different than the time of Jesus. Uh, maybe the speed of information by which they received things in Jesus' time was different. But even in John chapter 7, they had to wrestle with whether or not the information they were hearing about was actually true or not. Our passage this morning puts us right in the middle of a huge dispute over the identity of Jesus. Jesus has been making some massive claims about who he is, and he's been um, even performing some incredible miracles as we've seen in these first six chapters. And it appears in John chapter 7 that, that almost every Jew is talking about Jesus. It seems as though some of the Jews are believing in Jesus. They're saying, yeah, what he is saying is true. And yet there are other Jews who are unconvinced. It seems as though for some of these Jews, their fake news radar is up, and they're unsure of this Jesus guy. Jesus' way of life and his teaching, however impressive and extraordinary, has raised a lot of eyebrows. And so the central focus of John chapter 7 and 8 deals with the identity of Jesus. Now, before we dive into the, the details of our passage this morning, I did just want to set the context. Um, since we'll be in the Feast of Booze, really over the next two chapters, I want to maybe talk about uh, what the Feast of Booze is all about. If you notice in chapter 7, the first two words there, it says, after this. Now, after this does reflect a, a gap of about six months from the end of John 6 to the beginning of John 7. We know that chapter 6 took place during the Passover, from chapter 6, verse 4, which occurred during the spring. And we know that chapter 7 takes place during the Feast of Booze, according to verse 2. Now, the Feast of Booze occurs in the fall, and so there's about six months missing from John's accounts. And yet he helps to maybe fill in the details by adding 
that Jesus would not go about in Judea because he was in Galilee. Okay, so Jesus spends the last six months, and uh, in total, he spends over a year, almost a year and a half in Galilee, and yet John barely mentions anything about what Jesus did in Galilee. I find that very interesting because the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost spend the, the entirety of their work within Jesus' Galilean ministry. And yet he's avoiding uh, Judea and Jerusalem, and he's staying in Galilee because the Jews want to kill him. Now we move to verse 2, and it does tell us again that this is during the time of the Feast of Booze. This is the environment by which the opposition of Jesus grows more and more in chapter 7 and 8. And just to, um, just to remind you, we are only about six months away from Jesus actually being crucified. So from this point in time, every interaction that Jesus has with really any type of group of people, the opposition and the hatred continues to grow. Now, since we're going to be at the Feast of Booze for the next couple of chapters, I do want to maybe explain what the Feast of Booze was all about. The Feast of Booze was also known as the Feast of the Tabernacles, and it was uh, first instituted in Leviticus chapter 23. This feast was one of three that required every Jewish male to actually participate and attend in Jerusalem. The other two was the, the Passover feast, again happening in the spring, and then the Feast of Pentecost, which happened 50 days after the Passover. Now, the Feast of Booze is very significant. It had three purposes for the Jewish people. Purpose number one was that this was a time of celebration. They would spend about eight days together celebrating and remembering God's great provision towards their forefathers during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If you remember, God freed his people from Pharaoh, from the Egyptians, and after the Red Sea, and then they wandered for about 40 years. Well, God provided for them quite miraculously in the manna, but also in providing water through the rock in Exodus chapter 17. He also provided uh, protection for them in, uh, in, in the Jewish people building these temporary shelters or these temporary booths as they're out in the wilderness. God protected them uh, during that time. And so they would spend this feast celebrating all that God did in those 40 years. Secondly, the other purpose is that this was a time of supplication. Jerusalem was a dry land, and they depended upon rain uh, and the water in order to grow their crops, in order to have water to drink. And so this was the time in which uh, the Jewish people would gather together, and they would make requests before God to send rain. And then thirdly, the other purpose is that this was a time of anticipation, that they would spend this time talking about uh, the, the new exodus and God bringing his kingdom and all the blessings that come with his kingdom. They would talk often about that during these eight days. This feast uh, was the party feast. Okay, this was a feast that the Jews did not want to miss. Uh, this was the time in which there was great celebration, a, a lot of food, a lot of drink, a lot of dancing, and a lot of singing. Even the, the great historian of the first century, Josephus, describes the Feast of Booze as the most popular of the three Jewish feasts that brought the faithful Jews flocking to Jerusalem. And so just imagine Jerusalem, and specifically the temple, during the eight days here, as 
as absolutely packed out with Jews. Remember, Jews are traveling from all over, all over, and they're there around the temple area for about eight days. Now, something unique that they would do during this time is that they would actually build these temporary shelters or booths and live in them during the eight days of this festival. And the booths there, they had to be built a certain way, had to have extra thin walls so that the light could shine in because they wanted to remember what their forefathers lived in during the 40 years of wandering. And so just imagine all of these booths, all of these shelters all over Jerusalem, in the alleys and on the flat rooftops and in the courts of the temple, just all over the place, trying to remember and recall what their forefathers experienced. Now, at the heart of the festival, and this is something that we need to understand in order to understand the significance of these next two chapters, is that every single day the Jews would gather at the temple and the designated priest would stand on the platform and he would um, share some you know, scriptures from the Old Testament, uh, primarily about how God provided for their forefathers. And then he would raise up this gold pitcher. Okay? And this gold pitcher was kind of the sign uh, of, of when the, the Jews would then go to the pool of Siloam. And so the priest would take that gold pitcher, would lead the Jews to the pool of Siloam. He'd take that pitcher and he would dip it into the pool and, and draw water. And at that moment in time, this huge celebration would ensue. Imagine, you know, loud trumpets and flutes playing and palm branches waving. And the Jews would erupt in loud singing. They'd be quoting psalms and different Old Testament passages and they would just begin to have this celebration of how great God was to their forefathers. One of the texts that they would kind of repeat over and over again is from Isaiah 12:3 that says, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so they'd be celebrating and, and following this priest all the way back to the temple. The priest would ascend back on that platform, and he would um, actually spill out the water from the pitcher and then ask God to bring more water and to bring more rain uh, to his people. It's very significant because later on in John chapter 7, Jesus will stand up in the middle of the Feast of Booze, and he will say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, that would have resonated with the Jews at that moment of what Jesus is claiming there. And we'll look at that text in a couple of weeks. One other thing about the Feast of Booze that's also significant is that on the first night, they would take these large 75 feet tall lampstands and they would light them and they would have enough oil where the light would last during the entire eight days uh, of that entire feast. And that was significant because, uh, you know, the temple was kind of on this hill in Jerusalem. And so all of the Jews would, would kind of see this light shining before them. And so that's significant because they would celebrate how God would, would you know, provide direction and his presence through the pillar of cloud and through the fire in the Old Testament. And they would celebrate uh, God being the light. Well, that's also significant because in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to stand before them and declare that I am the light of the world. And he's going to do that on the last day of the feast. Now, I share that with you not to make you feel like you're in seminary like I've been in, you know, and just, you know, kind of have your eyes roll back. But there is, there is some rich uh, imagery going on with what Jesus is trying to connect before the Jewish people here. 
He's making these claims here because he wants his identity to be front and center at the Feast of Booths so that they cannot ignore him. They cannot kind of you know, move him aside and, and just you know, not have to wrestle with his identity. He's putting before them a decision that they have to make whether or not they believe in what Jesus is saying is true or if they are choosing to not believe in what Jesus is saying uh, is true. This question of who is Jesus is the central focus of chapter 7 and 8. Now this question is not just important in John chapter 7, but this is the most important question that you and I can answer in our entire lives. Who is Jesus Christ and what are you going to do with him? Dr. James Boyce, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, he had his own radio program. And some of the staff of that radio program thought that that question of who is Jesus was so important that they wanted to find out what the people of Philadelphia thought about that question. And so the staff went out into Philadelphia and they asked random people off the streets, who is Jesus Christ? And the answers that they collected led them to believe that there's great confusion over the identity of Jesus. They recorded some of the answers. They said that one young woman responded and said that Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God, but wasn't actually God. Another woman, a biology student, replied that Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy, that God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known, but only felt. Another man answered and said, I think that's something that you have to decide for yourself, but Jesus had some beautiful ideas. Others replied and said that Jesus is an individual who lived 2,000 years ago, and he was interested in the betterment of all classes of people. That Jesus was well-liked, he meant well, but he was only a good man. And then there were quite a lot of responses that people just said, I don't know. I have no idea who Jesus Christ actually is. I share that with you this morning because those responses, 2,000 years after Jesus lived among the earth, are some of the same responses that we're going to find in John chapter 7 and 8 as the people here at the Feast of Booths are trying to sift through, well, who is Jesus? Is what he's claiming true or is it fake news? These are some of the same responses that we're going to see. In fact, those are same, some of the same responses that your non-Christian friends and coworkers and neighbors and family members have about who Jesus Christ is. That as you've tried to share the gospel and have conversations uh, with them about who Jesus is and his identity, those are some of the same things that they have said. And yet one of the things that John has emphasized before us is that correct knowledge about Jesus proceeds a saving faith in Jesus. That in order to have saving faith in him, you must understand the correct biblical Jesus. That's why John has labored throughout his gospel to make clear the identity and mission of Jesus. Remember the central purpose of John's book here. He states for us in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is who? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wants you to believe in Jesus, but to believe in the correct version of Jesus outlined in his gospel. Look, this is an important question, not just for unbelievers to wrestle with, but even for us as Christians to wrestle with. 
Think about the Apostle Paul who you know, wrote a lot of the New Testament letters that we have. Even 25 years after his conversion, he's still declaring in Philippians 3 that his aim in life is to know Jesus. That's, that's what his whole life was all about. And that should be our pursuit in this life is to know Jesus in a greater way and to never be satisfied with what we have in our relationship with him. Like knowing Jesus in a deeper way leads us to be transformed. Knowing Jesus in a greater way leads us to actually obeying what he has said. And the way that we know Jesus in a greater way is by knowing what the Bible actually says about him. This is why we emphasize the Bible so much is because this is not fake news that we read. But the Bible is true, it is reliable, it is authoritative, and it is relevant in shaping who Jesus is and what we ought to believe about his identity. Now, in John chapter 7, what we're going to learn is that there are three different groups of people who have three different views about who Jesus actually is. And as a result of how they view Jesus and how they see Jesus, each of these three groups then respond to Jesus differently. I'm just going to point out these three groups as we move through. The first group is what I'll call the advisors. The advisors. In verses 3 through 5, we see Jesus' brothers come onto the scene here. Now, Matthew 13 records for us that Jesus had four younger brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. And we know that James later on uh, wrote the letter of James. He became a pillar and a leader in the New Testament or in the early church. We know that Jude wrote the small letter of Jude in the New Testament. But at this point in time, according to verse 5, they did not believe in Jesus. In fact, verse 5 uh, explains why they did what they did in verses 3 through 4. In verses 3 through 4, they kind of put on the advisor hat and they start to provide to Jesus some worldly wisdom. And the reason why they do that is because of their unbelief. That their unbelief about Jesus leads them to try to uh, maybe coach Jesus in how he ought to live. They essentially say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we know that you want to be great. We know that you want people to follow you. Well, you've got to go where the people are. You need to go to the capital, go to Jerusalem where the movers and the shakers are, and you need to do some great things. You need to take the center stage and start to draw people to yourself. Now, at this point in time, remember, Jesus' popularity is, again, very, very high and yet, Jesus just lost thousands of his own disciples at the end of John chapter 6. I think that we can safely assume that Jesus' brothers were concerned about this. I'm sure Jesus' brothers, who did not believe in Jesus, looked at Jesus as kind of the meal ticket for the family. And they looked at Jesus, and they probably saw dollar signs as you know, uh, you know, contributing a lot of uh, good to the family name. And so they're looking at, you know, six months previous at all the followers that Jesus lost, and they're trying to coach Jesus. They're trying to be almost like these consultants of trying to give Jesus some help of how to live his life. Now, on this side of things, we can so easily look at this and think how silly it is to provide advice to the Son of God. And yet, I think if we were honest this morning, we have moments in our own lives in which we can put on the advisor hats, can't we? We've got those moments in our life where we can encourage God to do things our way instead of trusting in his way. 
that for us, we can struggle to put on that advisor hat um, in, in specifically our prayer life. Prayer life is kind of a good uh, way to determine if we're viewing God as, as someone that we can kind of boss around. Oftentimes in our prayer lives, we bring our to-do list for God to do and for God to work related to our family or our friends or our careers or our spouse or our kids. And sometimes our prayers can sound bossy to God. We can kind of tell God how he should do his job. We say, God, fix this and change this and do that and work in this way. And if we're not careful, our posture can be very similar to Jesus's brothers. where We're trying to advise God on what he should do, like God needs, needs help in order to do his job well. Instead of having a posture where, you know, we are to bring our requests before God, Philippians 4 tells us to do that, but we want to make sure that our posture before him is one of humility and submission before him. And I think one way to help us do that is by looking at what Jesus does and how he responds to his brothers in verses 6 through 8, that Jesus essentially responds to his advisors and says, look, we have a plan. Like, it's not my time yet because, look, God has an agenda. There is a timetable that we are following, and you need to trust in this time and then this plan that we have set in motion. I think it's really helpful if you're tempted to ever put on the advisor hat before God and tell him what he ought to do, to just be reminded that God has a plan, that God's plan is flawless, even if we don't like it, even if we don't agree to it, but just to remember that God stands in every moment in time, and yet he sees all of the moments at once, that God sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, and that should lead us, if we understand God correctly, to providing our requests before God, but doing so out of humility and submission before him. Look, I know this is really hard, especially if you're in a trial or if you're going through a hard season of life. Our knee-jerk response is to put on the advisor hat and to tell God what he should do in our trial. God, get me out of here. God, end this hardship ASAP, and here are some reasons why. But if we understand God's sovereignty and God's magnificent plan and timing, then our response should be, especially in trials, is, God, I don't like this. God, I'd rather be out of this trial, but I trust in you, and I'm going to submit to whatever you have in this trial. That, God, I may not see uh, clear enough. You see every moment at once. And with my finite vision, I'm unable to see how you're using this trial to uniquely shape and grow me. So I'm going to stay in this trial as long as you want me to be in this trial. Like that should be our correct uh, posture as we bring our request before him. Reminds me of, of what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember right before he was crucified, Jesus makes a request before the Father. He says to the Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to go through this suffering, okay? And if it just ended there, we'd be like, man, that's, is, is that the correct response for Jesus to make? But he doesn't finish with that. He says also, not my will, but your will be done. And I think that's a good picture of, of how we should bring our request as Philippians 4 commands us to do, and yet ending it and drenching those requests with the awareness that, God, I trust you. I'm going to surrender to what you have 
before me. I'm not going to boss you around and tell you how to do your job. And yet Jesus' brothers have found themselves in this position because they do not believe in Jesus and in his identity. Well, the second group here that I see in this passage is what I'll call uh, the admirers. The admirers in verses 11 uh, through 15. Jesus ends up going to the feast. He goes there about halfway through, maybe day three or day four. And before he's there, verse 11 tells us that there were Jews that were looking for him. In fact, in verses 11 through 15, there appears to be a group of Jews that like Jesus. There's a group that uh, even admire Jesus, if you will. Verse 12 says, And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Even verse 15 tells us that they marveled at Jesus. There appears to be these admirers who uh, enjoy Jesus. They maybe heard about his teachings or experienced his compassion or experienced his miracles firsthand. And I just want to say that admiring Jesus is a good thing. Having that admiration of who Jesus is is something that we are called to have in our own hearts. And yet there is a type of admiration that can be dangerous in our lives. It's the type of admiration that doesn't lead to obedience to what Jesus has said. There's a type of of marveling at Jesus and liking Jesus and admiring Jesus, but it can be dangerous if it's not leading you in order to live a surrendered life. And we see that here in uh, this group here. Verse 13 shows us that there are, there, there's this group of Jews who admire Jesus, but they're not willing to count the cost and actually follow Jesus because of fear of the Jews. They're unwilling to allow their admiration to lead them into obedience. Look, this group, the admirers of Jesus, this is something that can be true of us as well, that we want the benefits of Jesus. We admire Jesus. We're fans of Jesus. We like Jesus. And yet that admiration can be dangerous if we still have areas of our lives that we have not fully surrendered. If we still have those categories in our lives where we essentially say to God, keep out, this is mine. Where we kind of stiff arm God and we say, God, off limits here, here, and here. You can have my Sundays. I'll even call myself a Christian. But if you want these areas of my life, I'm out. See, the admirers here, they, they like Jesus, but they want to keep him at a distance. And that's the safest place for them to be. They say, Jesus, I like your teachings. I like your grace. I like your ethics. But I do not like your demands. I'm going to stay at a distance. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, talks about this idea where he says that the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. It seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe them, that they are not followers of Jesus. They are fans of Jesus, an enthusiastic admirer. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. And I think that that adequately describes some of the Jews who are here, who are hearing the teachings of Jesus. And I think it even describes many people who might call themselves Christians today. It's the kind of individuals who are kind of half in with Jesus and half out. 
They have a little bit of Jesus over here and a little bit of the world, and they think that they're in because they prayed some kind of prayer when they were little. And yet that is not saving faith. Saving faith is demonstrated in surrendered living. Saving faith is demonstrated in true admiration and worship that leads to obedience and leads to submission. The admirers here are unwilling to do that. I pointed out one of the gaps in uh, in their understanding of Jesus, they're unwilling to follow him because of verse 13, but also because of their reaction towards Jesus' authoritative teaching. According to verse 14, Jesus shows up and he begins to teach in the temple. Now, this was not out of the norm during the Feast of Booze. Different rabbis would show up and teach during the eight-day festival. But it's interesting that Jesus has kind of mixed reviews about his teaching. There are some who marvel about it, some who like it, and yet some who actually want to kill him because of it. And I think the reason why his teaching was so polarizing is because of the authority behind it. They say, how can this man have such authority? He's not educated. He's not learned. He hasn't gone through our rabbinical schools. And yet Jesus points out, he's like, I have this authority because of my father, because of the one who sent me. And look, ultimately, they did not accept the authority of Jesus' teaching because of verse 17. Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus gives us some insight here to this second group, the admirers, who are unwilling to accept Jesus' teaching because they're unwilling to do God's will. They do not have a desire to do the things of God And that is causing them not to receive this teaching from Jesus. Look, this is, I think, a warning for us. If we ever find ourselves in this second category of admiring Jesus from a distance, is that our lack of obedience can disrupt our ability to hear and receive the word of God when it's being taught and when we are reading it. That if your admiration of Jesus is keeping you at a distance and it's not leading you into obedience, it's not leading you into living a surrendered life, then it will get in the way of the word actually working in your life on a consistent basis. One scholar summed up this verse very succinctly. He said that right willing is the foundation of right knowing. In other words, when you have this desire to do God's will, this right willing, it creates kind of the soil by which you grow in your understanding of God through the teaching of God's word. Like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 about this idea. He says that the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, if you find yourself in this position, well, what's the way out? Well, the way out is to get into this never-ending cycle of what I'll call the never-ending cycle of discipleship. It's the cycle of getting yourself immersed in the scriptures So that God, by his word and by his spirit, he might shape your will, he might shape your desires to actually want to do God's will. So that the more that you're reading it, the more that you're studying it, it might lead you into actually obeying God's word that will lead you into reading God's word all the more. 
It's this never-ending cycle of growth and transformation that begins with immersing yourself in God's word so that your will can be conformed to the will of God. That's important so that we might be not just hearers of the word, but that we are doers of the word. That as you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, you should not only be pointing out interesting verses or this is a good teaching, but you should always go, you should always go towards how can I apply that in my life? What would that look like practically if I live that out on my Monday through, through Saturday? Actually taking that step and taking the word and applying it into your life. Well, the Jews here who are admirers of Jesus are unwilling to do that because they're not receiving the authoritative teaching of Christ. Well, now the last group I want to point out for us, the third group who has a unique view of Jesus that leads to a unique response to Jesus are the antagonists. The antagonists. We've looked at the advisors, the admirers, and now the antagonists. Obviously, there are a uh, a group of Jews here in this crowd who, uh, who do not like Jesus. Uh, religious leaders for the last six months have been trying to find Jesus and kill Jesus. We know in verse 13b, uh, verse 13b, there are Jews who are saying that Jesus is leading the people astray. There are people who want to kill Jesus as Jesus notes in verse 19. And the antagonists here are really the, the, the religious leaders. They feel threatened by Jesus. Their fear is that if the Jews here actually follow what Jesus is saying, they're going to lose influence, power, and respect. And so they're antagonistic towards Jesus. Well, in verses 19 through 24, the opposition towards Jesus increases all the more. And the reason for that is because Jesus points out towards the religious leaders their false understanding of the scriptures. And in particular, their false understanding of how the law and the Sabbath laws actually go together. That he points out before them and he says, look, I know that you're mad at me and you want to kill me because I did one work on the Sabbath back in chapter 5. If you remember, uh, Jesus healed the invalid by the, the pool of Bethesda. You're mad at me because I healed him, and yet you religious leaders, you actually break the Sabbath consistently related to circumcision uh, and the Sabbath law. You break it almost every single week. And the reason he says that is because they would circumcise boys when they were eight days old, and they would circumcise them no matter if it landed on the Sabbath day. And so when they circumcise boys on the eighth day on the Sabbath, they're breaking the Sabbath law and the Sabbath principle. So Jesus uh, very wisely, I think, points that out before them, and it causes them to be all the more furious and angry at Jesus. This was a no-no. You did not call out the religious leader's hypocrisy or false judgment of the Old Testament scriptures. That was a great way to get yourself killed. This was a way that the religious leaders could um, exercise their authority and their power over the Jewish people. And Jesus is calling out their inconsistencies and even their sin with this. Now, this morning, in applying that principle, none of us want to kill Jesus. And yet, I wonder if maybe some of our responses towards God and maybe towards other people who might point out inconsistencies in our own lives is maybe antagonistic towards him. Maybe when conviction falls upon our lives, if we're reading the word, 
And, and through reading the word, God convicts us. God shows us some of those gaps in our own lives. If we start to get frustrated with God, if we start to get defensive or we blame shift towards God, we get antagonistic towards God when he points out those inconsist- inconsistencies in our own lives. Or maybe even the messenger. You know, maybe we're not getting directly mad at God, but maybe our spouse or a friend or an accountability partner or a small group leader who speaks the truth and love and points out some inconsistencies in sin, are we ready to receive that? Do we have this posture of being open and to receive this, this instruction and this conviction in order to grow in our relationship with Jesus? Or do we respond in a similar way to the religious, religious leaders who, when Jesus points out some inconsistencies, they start to get mad at Jesus? Look, all of that reveals your understanding of who you think Jesus actually is. If you think that Jesus is primarily concerned about your happiness, then when he brings conviction upon your life, you're going to get frustrated with him. You say, no, 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 Jesus, don't, don't bring that conviction to my life. Like, I just want to feel encouraged and edified when I read the Bible, right? That reveals a false understanding of God because in reality, God's not so much concerned about your happiness and your comfort. He's concerned about your holiness and your growth. He wants to transform you. And so he will bring that conviction upon your life. He will reveal those inconsistencies in your life in order to grow you and make you look more and more like Jesus. The way that we can grow in that is to be open and to receive it and to actually want those areas, those blind spots to be pointed out in our lives. So we see here with the antagonists, they want nothing to do with that. In fact, they want to kill Jesus. Well, we have these three groups who all respond to Jesus differently. And yet all throughout John's gospel, we see that Jesus is someone that they cannot ignore. John has been trying to show us that Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% man. That he's not just a moral teacher. He's not a distant God, but he's a God who cares He's a God who lived and dwelt among us. And even six months from now, in John chapter 7, Jesus is going to get up on a cross, and he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to pay a penalty so that people, so that mankind can actually have a relationship with him and actually be saved for all who believe. And this is the Jesus that we need to view and need to grow in, in our understanding of who God is and what he is like. This morning, as we close today, we don't have another song to sing, but I just want to provide just a time of reflection for us to just sit and to maybe reread this chapter 7 that we've already studied together. And I want you to wrestle with the question of which of the three groups, the advisors, the admirers, and the antagonists, which group resonates with you? Which group do you find yourself saying, yeah, like I do that sometimes. I, I can see that in my own life. And just ask the Lord to reveal that in your life. And look, if you find yourself resonating with the advisor, just want to encourage you to, to consider ways that you can bring requests before God without you know, being his advisor or being bossy. If you find yourself resonating with the admirers, that you can consider your obedience and that your admiration should lead to doing what Jesus has said. And if you resonate with the antagonist, that you need to consider how you receive instruction, how you receive uh, conviction from others and from the Lord. So I just want to take the next couple of minutes to just stop and reflect on that and ask the Lord to continue to reveal that in our hearts 
and then I'll come back up and give the word of benediction. So let me pray for this moment. God, I pray that you would just continue to use your word, Lord, even as we just pause and we stop and we exhale and we just reflect. God, I pray that we would not quickly rush out of here. God, I pray that you would help us to be doers of your word, to see the warnings in these three groups, to correctly view you so that we can then respond to you rightly. So God, reveal what you need to reveal in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.